0: Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, pro natural physique athlete, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined again by the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Mike Isertel, who has been an amazing guest on the show and is back again to give us some really advanced tips on hypertrophy for different muscle groups. Thanks for being on the show, Mike.
1: Uh, doctor, thank you so much for having me. About to use your first name, that would have been so rude. So, uh, I'm glad to be back as always. I can't wait to dig in.
0: All right. Yeah. So, today is going to be a really juicy episode. We're going to be getting into some of the finer techniques and tips that Mike has for us in terms of optimizing our muscle growth for the different muscle groups. And we're going to be starting off with some of the bigger muscle groups today, probably start up with legs. And we're going to be going on to, you know, beyond just the basics in terms of, you know, just Volume and frequency, and those major things, but actual tips that will help take your training to the next level. So, really excited about this! I think this is going to add a lot of value for people. So, yeah, and maybe starting off, I was thinking starting off with legs and quads would be a good start,
1: Mike. Yeah, okay. So, uh, just as a bit of a preamble, if you're tuning in and this is all like really spot advanced stuff and it seems to assume we know a lot that is absolutely correct um if you google hypertrophy guide central hub you will inevitably end up in a series of articles that i wrote with my colleagues at renaissance periodization there is one article for every major muscle group and it gets into the absolute nitty-gritty fine details of sets and reps and volumes and intensity techniques periodization priority phases all that stuff and there's tons of youtube videos on renaissance periodization youtube about tons of muscle groups and all the guides and so on and so forth so if you're sort of like wait hold on what are we talking about here that could be some good resource get that stuff checked out come back around and maybe this podcast will uh, be more enlightening and and less confused so quads is So I have a few good tips to share for quads. And one of the main tips I have to share for quads. Is that oftentimes? People do what is generally correct for beginners and sometimes intermediates, which is getting very technically proficient at the big movements, squats and lag presses and lunges and hack squats and things like that. But. In doing so, they're trying to drive their strength up, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing until and unless you experience the following problem, which many people will experience. They're lifting heavier and heavier weights in their squats, for example. But their quads just aren't growing as much as they would expect. Sometimes people start to feel the load, a lot of adductors They feel a lot of the load in their glutes. They feel a lot of the load in their back. And they kind of have the sensation like I'm squatting the weight up. And I know because literal knee extension is occurring, my quads have to be contracting. But it seems like I'm doing a lot of work with other parts of my body and maybe not getting the best quad stimulus I can get. And my advice to those folks is to go back to the drawing board a little bit. And ask yourself how you can optimize movements for quad engagement and quad stimulus. And one of the ways to do it is to first of all, become aware of what you know uh, can be termed a mind muscle connection. Now, the way I use mind muscle connection is a little bit differently than it's used in some parts of the literature and by some other people in the industry. A lot of people will say mind muscle connection is just an awareness of your muscles contracting or awareness of them moving. I don't think that's exactly correct because you can have a high mind muscle connection doing ballet, but ballet doesn't get you jacked. And you can be aware of your quads moving in a squat, but you can still not be moving in a way that stimulates them the most. So my idea of what a mind muscle connection is is one of two things. For lower repetitions, feeling the muscle get physically stretched. And a huge amount of tension imposed on it imagine doing a deep hack squat and feeling your quads kind of ripping apart towards the bottom end of the range of motion someone can say hey do you feel your quads and the question is some combination of funny and rhetorical (laughs) what else do you think i feel on the other hand you can define the mind muscle connection for higher repetition sets as something that produces a distinct acidic burn in the target muscles. So if you're doing high repetition, short step lunges and your glutes are burning, are your quads technically working? Sure. But if your glutes are burning and they're the ones that give out first, yeah, your quads got some work, but they weren't the limiting factor and they might not grow as much. But if your quads are on fire and you want to just pour super cooled liquid onto your quads to get the burn to go away, that set could be doing a lot of things, but it is definitely not under stimulating your quads because that kind of acid production must occur from muscle contraction. And if your muscles are contracting, they're generating force. Also, I would say the metabolites uh, in literature directly cause muscle growth. So it's all really good things. So taking those two proxies of, you know, mind-muscle connection into the gym, you can start to re-rig your exercises and your execution in such a way that you are making sure those things happen to your quads as much as possible so for example if you can take a wider stance in a hack squat yes your knees still bend yes you're still getting quad stimulus you can lift a lot of weight like that and that's good okay fine but if you take a narrower stance potentially this is very individual and all of a sudden all the way through the range of motion you feel a huge amount of tension in your quads not just the general leg not the lower body because you know also when you put in your music when you get really amped for a set you put on your belt people could be like well what do you feel like i don't really you know childhood memories and trauma that i relive every time i lift weights right uh right dark dark i just see darkness that's all that's all i got So that's good but if you're having trouble growing and stimulating your quads because a lot of people say like i do six sets of you know eight to ten reps in the hack squats and my quads don't get sore and as soon as i hear that i think oh gee whiz i'd love to take a look at that person's technique and the execution that, that they do so maybe choosing a narrower stance can let you feel a ton of tension in the quads and for higher reps that stance results in a ton of burn in the quads Maybe it's a foot position that allows you to feel more tension and burn in the quads. Maybe it's a range of motion where you didn't feel a ton of tension in your quads until you descended to below parallel in the hack squat, and then everything from there down to your calves touching your hamstrings feels like your quads are going to explode off the bone. If you chase within the constraint of good technique, within the constraint of still increasing the amount of load or reps you do every week, if you chase high tension in the target muscle, and a high degree of burn in the target muscle, in this example, your quads, your training will very likely improve in quality. And what I mean by quality is the amount of quad stimulus for the amount of work you're doing will increase. That technique change won't happen overnight. You can play with your technique for weeks and months and years, and over time, progressively, get more connected to your quads. And over time, that will result in, more quad growth for the amount of work that you're putting in, and for some people that are very uh, you know, challenged with quad growth, it may result in the first quad growth you've experienced in a long time. It also leads you to change your technique in very interesting ways, some of them biomechanically predictable, but maybe not immediately obvious. For example, if you leg press with a high foot position, of course you use your quads. You have to. You're extending the knee, but you may be doing so much glute work and hamstring work and adductor work, that your quads are definitely in the mix, but if those other muscles are bigger or stronger and they tend to take over, you might get a decent stimulus out of it. If, however, you're chasing tension in the quads, you may realize that, okay, look, if I'm being honest with myself, if I move my feet down three inches on the platform, the degree of deflection is substantially increased, the degree of hip flexion is substantially de- decreased, and I really just do feel a ton more tension in my quads. The bad news is I can't lift as much weight because I'm at a huge mechanical disadvantage. But if you chase that tension and if you chase that burn, very likely those will pay off because those are much better proxies of your quads being stimulated with tension and burn respectively than the simple external biomechanics of moving around. And if you really wanted to chase as much weight on the bar as possible, you should just squat low bar to just above parallel. Oh, my God, you can lift so much weight. But when powerlifters who have smaller quads decide to get bigger quads, they don't squat low bar to just above parallel, they squat high bar very upright. Here's another tip I have for quads, Hmm. especially when you're doing squats. Make sure that you stay as upright as you can in your upper body and make sure that while your heels are on the ground, as soon as you start to descend, your knees travel forward as much as possible. Google any Chinese weightlifter, you'll see the exact same squat being done. We're not all as gifted, and some of our torso lengths and relationships are different. But the more you can proxy that squat, the more you'll realize that's a quad squat. And it's really your quads that get the huge amount of tension on the way down. And that if you squat really deep, they get a crazy amount of tension at the bottom. And they get a crazy amount of tension on the way up if you stay upright. If you shoot your butt back, just stand up any way you can. Say stupid things to yourself like weight moves weight, point A to point B, don't overcomplicate it. Sure, you don't wanna overcomplicate anything that is unnecessary to overcomplicate. But if your quads are not responding and you're getting really strong in the squat, it is time to complicate things, at least marginally. So if you can stay very upright, letting your knees travel forward, you get all these benefits. And if you do this for high repetitions, your quad burn will be mind altering. And then you'll know that, wow, I really am onto something. So the last thing I'll say is range of motion. been a few studies now that show that tension generated under a stretch is probably very good for hypertrophy and that means leg press quad or sorry hack squat regular squat if you can descend very deep to the point where you're sitting ass to ankles and you are stretching the living crap out of your quads not least by making sure the knees are forward and you're very upright you will stimulate quad growth to an insane 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 extent and that generally would be a really good thing since uh, you know since okay now 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 the torrent of quad tips is coming that's because i'll have a lot of these mm-hmm. tips i have to repeat for other muscle groups because it's the uh, same same but some some unique quad ones there is this idea that you can grow muscle equally well between many rep ranges anywhere between sets of five reps and sets of 30 reps and that's generally true but it is not always true in every circumstance so in some cases muscles respond better to higher repetitions or lower repetitions depending on the muscle depending on the person what i would do is alter your repetitions in the quads to experiment with sets of 5 to 10, sets of 10 to 20, and sets of 20 to 30. Some of that is exercise specific, but in general, what that's going to allow you to do is see where you get the most proxies for stimulus. Do you get a crazy burn, for example, doing leg extensions for sets of 25 reps, or do you just feel tired and pissed off? Mm -hmm. If it's tired and pissed off, it's probably not going to grow you a lot of muscle. If you do sets uh, of squats for for sets of five reps and you just feel like you're like someone's like how's that feel you're like my knees hurt my hips hurt my back hurts and that's all i got <laughs> that's probably not productive what is productive is maybe if you're doing sets of five in a squat and someone's like how was that you're like dude i feel like my quads are literally going to explode on every single rep especially at the bottom now you're talking now that's a high quality set now something is happening so i would make sure and, and and there's also this is exercise dependent so for example i used to do leg extensions for sets of 10 and i i just felt like it, my knees were uncomfortable and nothing else happened when i started doing leg extensions for my reps and drop sets and sets of 20 to 30 i was in a world of excruciating lactate induced pain and my quads started to grow from leg extensions and i had thrown away that exercise is useless and pointless but it turns out that if I just altered the repetition range, a whole lot of things got better. The last thing I'll say for quads, especially on hack squats and especially on leg presses, myo reps or essentially a certain kind of rest pause repetition work incredibly well. Get you on the leg press, put on roughly your 12 to 15 rep max. Do it for about 10 repetitions, right around the time when this gets really uncomfortable and the burn gets pretty intense. Lock out your knees at the top. Nice and gentle. You're fine. Most people can lock out their knees and be very safe. Rest about three to five seconds. Nice, big, deep breaths. Then do another mini set of three to five repetitions. Repeat that twice in each set. So, for example, you get to 10, rest. Get to 15, rest. Get to 18, rack. That one set won't take so much time. It will allow you to approach failure three times in the same set. It will destroy your quads. I've had workouts where I've done three sets, quote unquote, like that of leg press, and I'm vomiting up blood and people are wondering if I'm going to die in the gym and my quads get sore for five days straight. If I was going to do straight sets for quads, I might need seven or eight sets of leg press to do the same thing. I don't know about you guys. I don't know about you, Bill. She gets annoying. I don't want to have to get yeah. around the machine that many times. So that's a big deal. And sorry, the quads, this is my quads are a passion of mine. I swear I'll shut up after this. Um, isolation to compound supersetting works incredibly well for quads because other muscles are actually unable to take over and help. Uh, the quads end up being the limiting factor in the more compound movement. For example, after your last set of leg presses maybe it's a myo rep set for really high reps as soon as you're done get out of the machine face the mirror and begin instantly doing bodyweight squats slow controlled eccentric full depth at the bottom count for 1 second at the bottom come almost all the way up don't lock out and go right back down the uh, the metabolites that were put into your legs during the leg press set will have nowhere to go except continue to increase in concentration during the time that you're doing the bodyweight squats. The loading is, well, zero. It's whatever your shank weight plus, you know, shank weight subtracted from the rest of your body. You're not going to get hurt doing bodyweight squats. I If you are going to get hurt, you had it coming anyway. <laughs> you're going to get hurt one way or the other. It's an incredibly low fatigue, unbelievably high effort and unbelievably high stimulus thing you can do at the end of your workout if you manage to do 10 or 15 repetitions like that before collapsing it makes a huge difference in stimulus you'll be sore for two extra days if you do that than if you don't because you're essentially coming up to the muscle while it's down on the ground and kicking it while it is down so if you have trouble stimulating the muscle that will do it and we've had tons of people on the rp channel doing our you know supervised workouts for legs and if somebody needs a zapping you do a high rep leg press. You get out and you do as many bodyweight squats as you can. It will annihilate you. And it's ultra safe. You, as soon as you try it, you'll be like, I made a serious mistake. I should have never done this. I should have never listened to this. But you'll have 99 problems. Quad growth will not be one of them.
0: Yeah, wow. That's absolutely savage. They're going to have to set up a puking station at the gym now. Once after we <laughs> drop this episode. For sure. <laughs> you know bodyweight squat supersets are the worst of both worlds you know you like feel terrible and you know that you know you feel embarrassed because you're in the middle of the gym like going to like i i was doing this the other time and i basically went to failure in a bodyweight squat it's just yeah. like this is so embarrassing people are
1: watching me <laughs> if somebody walks in right when you're finishing one of those they're going to be like wow that guy's pretty jacked and he's really weak i'm stronger than him What a, what a loser
0: <laughs> yeah no i think I think quads are a really interesting one as well, you know, and both of the fact that they're 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 a very rich muscle group in terms of you know different training techniques, but also because of kind of this confounding factor of the squat, you know, being one of those big three movements that everyone loves and people tend to really fixate on. And I think that's one of those things where what got you growth as a beginner won't serve you the rest of your training career necessarily. And I think a lot of people will start off with really focusing on those big compound movements, which is great. But then at some point you start running to fatigue issues and you start running to these issues where there are a lot better, more efficient ways that you could be accessing that stimulus while still managing fatigue.
1: 100%. And it does require a bit of a shift in your thinking. And that shift can be explicitly stated as admitting to yourself that you only care, at least for the time being, about and say, I don't care how much weight is on the bar. Think about it this way. The, the biggest weight I've ever seen Big Rami do in, on video for his quads, which are so big that it's difficult to describe how that's even possible, is like six plates. And and really, I've only seen that once. Normally he uses only four plates for the squat, and they're a good full range of motion squats. And you think, well, if he really was interested in getting much bigger, He would be squatting what his quads could squat if he was aligned to squat. He would do low bar, put some knee wraps on him, pyramid up slowly over multiple years, and he'd be squatting 800 for reps. I have no doubt he has the quad strength to do that. But the question is, for the amount of stimulus he's getting squatting 800 for reps, is it worth the fatigue and the injury risk? Mm -hmm. If he could simply do four or five sets of leg presses before squatting, and then after squatting, quads are so much the limiting factor that he doesn't have to load a billion pounds onto his back to get the benefits. You know, the normal response is that, way, well, yeah, but he's on drugs. So are all the top power lifters. So that's all, that's gone. He has bigger quads than all of them. So at the end of the day, if you want to chase the biggest numbers you can at the gym in squatting, that will a lot of growth. At some point, you may realize that the amount of fatigue that imposes is not worth the stimulus nearly as much as other exercises. Somebody could take you in and say, okay, you're used to squatting a lot. Come do my hack squat workout with me you may squat 315 for sets of five and that's really good you get on the hack squat you warm up and eventually do working sets with 185 pounds your joints feel hardly anything but after three sets you're unable to walk and you're sore for a week you gotta ask yourself the question like have i been doing this wrong for some time it's this incredible it's like finding a burrito place in your town you've never been to that's just unbelievably tasty burrito and it's like five dollars less than the one you've been paying for you're like well damn what have I been doing that doesn't mean the other burrito place is bad and maybe it has a better ambiance maybe it has some cool flavors there's other reasons to be eating it just like in powerlifting is awesome getting strong is great for its own benefits but if you decide I want quad growth period and I don't care sociologically what, what I have to tell people I squatted, you will start to explore how to get the quads really involved and they might not be the sexiest movements. They might not be the sexiest rep ranges. They actually might be much harder training because it, your um, your pain level of intramuscular acidic pain is insane. You may be gasping for air, you may be throwing up, but again, your quads will grow. And if your quads haven't been growing, you've really been struggling, and you've gotten really strong in the squat, but it's just something is just not there anymore. You're getting a lot of knee pain, hip pain, adductors get sore. That's actually a common thing with the squat is people be like, my adductors get sore, my quads don't. Maybe it's time to modify your squats, or maybe it's time to get to other exercises, other repetition ranges, other kinds of techniques, some drop setting, and all of a sudden, voila, your quads are blowing up, and it was just a matter of you admitting to yourself, no, no, I want size, and I only care about strength in such a way that leads me to size and not for its own sake.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important thing to come to accept at some point in your training career. And, you know, for me, it was like last year when I, I just ended up having really bad patellar tendonitis from, from squatting and I had to just tell myself, okay, I'm going to just, I'm not allowed to do squats and let's see what I can come up with. Right. And ended up really having some improvements in my programming over t- over time and really emphasize how much you can learn that there's always more to learn
1: I used to do squats relatively heavy and other movements so I was already sold on other movements and rep ranges but then uh, a few years ago when I was in Vegas I actually got hurt um, in jiu-jitsu to the extent that I couldn't hit depth in the squat without pain mm-hmm. and I was like god damn it and I thought okay well I'm just not going to squat for a few months and I was like oh, this, this is terrible I'm going to lose leg mass I had to start dieting for a show during that time. Yeah. My legs grew and were the biggest they had ever been by the time I stepped on the show and was just getting back into squatting. And that really opened my eyes up. I also, at the same time, interestingly enough, uh, that same injury made it so that I couldn't do stiff-legged deadlifts because my same adductor would hurt. And I had to do only leg curls. And I was like, for sure, I'm losing back mass. I'm losing everything. I couldn't even do bent rows. With uh, because of that, I, getting into that position was was really painful. Um, and all of a sudden, I was doing more machine back work, the right way. Everything grew. I lost nothing. I only gained. And I was like, man, all those years I spent doing the hardcore basics, mm-hmm. which work and they're great, but they're not always the only right answer. And how much not so ideal stimulus to fatigue ratio was i missing out on by not doing that it's kind of like um you know it's it's almost like a like a strained analogy here um you know if you only you know date blondes or something like that <laughs> blondes are great and then you're like no, no, no. redheads i don't do redheads that's weird but you're never given it a chance and all of a sudden you go on a few dates with a few redheads and you're like, that was the most fun I've ever had in my life. And that doesn't mean blondes are terrible. That doesn't mean you're a redhead guy now. That just means you were like, for no real good reason, not exploring that option. And like, if you explored it and it sucked, hey, whatever, it didn't work. But if you explored, it was great. You kind of feel a little stupid afterwards. Maybe not stupid, but you know what I mean? Like, kind of like, ah, Lesson learned. And that's the thing with, you know, more dedicated quad work and machine work and stuff is done properly. It absolutely can compete with, and in some circumstances, be superior to free weight exercises. But so many people are so into that mentality. It's at the end of the day, if you really like sort of get into your mind, it is just ego at the end of the day in many cases that's keeping you doing the same stuff you've always been doing.
0: I don't know, man. Every Redhead I've dated has been crazy
1: that's the fun part <laughs> oh come on stop dating sane people is boring <laughs> fall asleep at the end of the day
0: exactly so yeah that was awesome and I think you know I think hamstrings are, are going to be some There are going to be some overlapping themes here as well where a lot you know a lot of people will stick to deadlifts but what are some advanced tips for people to break through plateaus with their hamstring growth
1: My best tip for hamstrings. Is that if you do not know how to simultaneously anteriorly tilt your pelvis. And keep your knees from. Tracking forward. Thus what you're doing is establishing a rigid knee at the at the that distal end of the hamstring and then by anteriorly tilting your pelvis, you are arching your lower back. Tummy comes out. You get a little crease in your back that looks like this. Sometimes chest up is a good cue. What you were doing is you're pre-stretching the hamstrings, and then when you descend in a good morning or stiff like a deadlift or a, a glute ham raise, anything, your hamstrings are, first of all, a ton of tension is imposed into them versus being taken up by the lower back or something like that. And second of all, if you go deep enough, and you don't have to go that deep if you can pre-stretch with the anterior tilt, you experience a profound, painful, eccentric stretching of the hamstrings. That tip takes an exercise like the stiff-legged deadlift and turns it from a movement that you're like, this exercise is dumb. I just get in my back to an exercise that is so obviously stimulative to hamstring growth that nobody has to tell you it does, drains your hamstrings. You're like, dude, every single repetition of that burned hamstring growth into my soul. But that ability to anteriorly tilt your pelvis and keep your knees from tracking forward is nuanced. It is difficult to see externally. You could watch people stiff a deadlifting, and you're like, I think I'm doing that, but I don't feel anything in my hamstrings. I remember a distinct time when I was trying to stiff a deadlift uh, after doing it numerous times when I was an early college student. And I was like, this exercise is dumb. I'm just gonna do leg curls, and leg curls are fine. And One time with 185 pounds. I just maybe by chance figured out how to tip tilt into anterior tilt. And I did like three sets of like 6 to 8 reps and I was like holy shit. That is some hamstring something and I got pretty sore. I was okay. Then I made a terrible mistake in an interesting direction. I'll never forget. I was at the Jewish Community center, that's right, in Metro Detroit, one of them, anyway, there's two. And I finally figured out how to hip hinge properly and load my hamstrings by keeping my knees back and keeping my anterior pelvic tilt in line by pushing my tummy out and arching my back and pushing my chest up. And I did two hundred and five pounds on the stiff-legged deadlift for three sets of twelve repetitions. Bill, my Doms, peaked three days later oh, and no. i couldn't walk normally for a week and a half and it was two and a half weeks until i was completely done being sore in my hamstrings and i was like okay first of all that was dumb early lesson about maximum <laughs> recoverable volume. and second of all if anyone ever tells me they can't feel stuff like a deadlift in their hamstrings i want to see their technique So, you know, I've had people, numerous people since then be like, yeah, stuff like it doesn't really hit my hamstrings. Bullshit. We actually had Juji Mufu on the, you know who that is?
0: Yeah, yeah, I saw.
1: He had him on the channel and he's he straight up told us, he's like, I'm too flexible. And Charlie, Jared and I looked at each other like, "Eh, all right. So we gave him all the cues and he's like, yeah, my hamstrings got sore for like five days they have to get sore you can't have a muscle that's open ended and length like that take that much eccentric damage and not get sore but you have to anteriorly tilt the hips if you're not ultra genetically gifted at it some people just some people just don't have a very uh, proclivity to round their uh lower back so you just tell them bend over and they're like all right and you're like okay you just got lucky get out of here <laughs> and some people they're like able to keep their knees back really well but for the rest of us if you stay bent over people do this and that's no good because your hamstrings are actually not even moving at all. So you have to do this and always tell yourself chest up, chest up, chest up, chest up, chest up, back, 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 back. And if you do that and come back up after a painful stretch, you are giving yourself a huge, you're opening an entire category of exercises to your hamstrings. Stiff legged deadlifts of all kinds. And there are many kinds, uh, including RDLs and then good mornings of all kinds. And then glute ham raises of all kinds. You finally know how to get into that position. So that's tip number one for hamstrings. And I have another tip, uh, uh, unless you'd like to uh, do some follow-up
0: questions. Yeah, no, that triggers an interesting piece where I think there's something I kind of discovered along the way when I used to run track, where we did a lot of, you know, stretching. I was a hurdler, so I was very flexible. And it was really interesting because, you know, I would see people talking about getting a stretch in their stiff leg deadlifts, and, you know, they'd be like doing a deficit and like going all the way down. And I would be like, well... I'm pretty flexible I can palm the floor like you know when I bend over to to stretch but I can also bend at the hip like three degrees and feel my hamstring stretch yes if I, if I know how to tilt my pelvis just in the kitchen you can just do it in the kitchen yeah.
1: like oh there yeah. they are
0: yeah like I'll be I'll be in the hospital I think I was doing that today Whereas like in the middle of a meeting, I'm like, ooh, I need a hamstring stretch. (laughs) It's just like, you know, real subtle, you know, just extend my leg just a little bit, 20 degrees, bend over a couple degrees
1: and I'm feeling it, you know, I'm stretching. It's a thing that you and I know because we've experienced it and we know how to do it. But for the longest time, I just had no idea. And funny enough, do you ever see like bodybuilders do complete knee extension around their back totally and stand on like seven inches and they're like oh i feel i guess i get my hamstrings like that ain't it because yeah. you're taking your lower back through a full degree of flexion. it's great uh, lumbar hypertrophy exercise it's quite safe if you do it for moderate repetitions but as far as a stimulus to fatigue ratio for hamstrings you can do so much less physical work i mean force times distance same force one third the distance if you can anteriorly tilt your pelvis it makes all the difference in the world so that's a big deal that's the first recommendation hmm. second thing and this is something I had to discover as well, and I discovered in, uh, later on in grad school, actually. Once I discovered how to hip hinge in good mornings and stiff legged deadlifts, I just didn't do leg curls for literally years. And every time I tried to do leg curls, I assumed that the set and rep recommendations from stiff legged deadlifts and good mornings were just going to transfer it right over to leg curls. So, hmm. for example, i would do you know three sets of eight for stiff leg deadlifts is like suicide it's like a weak soreness so mm-hmm. i said okay fine i'll do three sets of 10 or three sets of 12 because you know leg curls are isolation movement blah blah blah. i'm not going to do anything like too heavy so three sets of 12 three sets of 10 in leg curls i would get nothing out of it barely even a pump no soreness and i was like soreness has to mean something and if i'm just feeling nothing here what am i even doing this for so i stopped doing leg curls and i just did hip hinges for the longest time ever and then i uh started thinking a little bit more critically at some point and i started to understand that different muscles and different exercises have different at least for an individual effective and optimum repetition ranges and set volumes and this is how i started to, this was an early thought that seeded eventually became the volume landmarks work that i'm probably most known for minimum hmm. effective volume maximum recoverable because you know a lot of programs and i'm sure you've done these back in the day when you were younger is like everything's three by ten right like three sets of everything. Yeah. and that assumes that three sets of whatever rep range you're standardizing at Carries the same weight of stimulus, but that's not true because exercises are different. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, you don't into battle, you don't send like it's three guys with guns or three bomber aircraft. Like that's not the same thing. That's three bomber aircraft is like 5,000 guys with guns. (laughs) So what I ended up doing was re examining the leg curl. And trying to see where I would get a better mind muscle connection and seeing how many sets it took for me to get enough disruption to feel sore so that I feel like once you get a muscle delayed onset soreness you know that anything below that is. Um, definitely some gradation to cause good hypertrophy and, you know, you don't have to do a ton more because once you get a muscle sore, especially for a few days, much more of the training than that is for a variety of reasons, not likely to cause much more hypertrophy. But, but if you never get sore, you don't know how far off of that you are. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's not something that, that works. Mm-hmm. So what I ended up doing was I did sets of 15 to 20 repetitions eventually, for four or five sets of leg curls. And I was like, oh my God, I got sore as shit. I got a great pump, great burn, all that stuff. And it literally took me years of idiocy writing off an entire exercise. So what I'll tell people is I'm not you and I don't know how it works in your body. But if you have a hamstring exercise which you have written off, or it's hard for you to train hamstrings, you don't feel some kind of connection with them, never get sore, or whatever, experiment with technique, experiment with repetition ranges, and experiment with different set numbers to find that golden zone, or at least some hint of an effective zone for you, because what may work for other people, and what you may see in uh people doing an instagram workouts and you know it's funny i still i still have this thing where i try to say what you see in the muscle magazines who the fuck reads paper magazines anymore Mm -hmm. so you know what you see on youtube and what you see in, in all the blogs and stuff that may not be what you need and you're different so adjust your volumes and your rep ranges accordingly and don't write off every exercise that you don't feel a ton from when you get an exercise that you don't get a lot out of at least try a different rep range and at least try a different number of sets because, at the end of the day, stiff legged deadlifts are pretty hard. You need long breaks between those sets. But like leg curls, you're not that hard. They're just really not that hard on an exercise. And you don't need a super long break. And even if you use something like Maya Reps, rest pause, you may be able to do just three sets of leg curls, but you take you know, two or three failure approaches with each set. And then it's an incredibly awesome hamstring workout that is systemically very low uh, taxation onto you. And it turns out to be this wonderful, wonderful thing. So for hamstrings, and uh, this applies, of course, to many other muscles, but for me, the, in my journey, the hamstrings were definitely the kind of the illustration of that. But before you write off an exercise or before you you know, say, well, this exercise works great for me and this one doesn't, at the very least, try some variations or repetitions. And at the very least, try some variations in volume outside of your typical volume ranges. Because, you know, if someone says, well, dumbbell curls don't work for me, but shows that if they just did two more sets of them every workout, it would be a great exercise. Variation's awesome. I mean, you can't, if you just do stiff like a deadlift all the time, what are you supposed to do when that exercise gets stale? Like, well, that exercise doesn't seem to work my hamstrings much anymore. And actually, I'm a little, my back hurts and I can't do it. If you look around the gym and you're like, well, all I have what are you gonna do it's like having one favorite food and you hate all other foods what do you do starve to death when you, you know, like that's nonsense so it's a good idea to you know just like for example this is a funny food analogy i'll do this for you personally bill because i know you're very food focused it'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll really sink in you know if, if you, you know had it. if you had pasta once at a restaurant and it was let's say pesto sauce You don't go around telling people you hate pasta. Like, try it with some red sauce. Try it with some Bolognese. Try it with some Alfredo. And try different kinds of pasta. And then one of those, probably, you'll be like, this is amazing. And you'll feel stupid for saying pasta's bad. Same idea with me and, and, you know, leg curls and all these other exercises where I wrote them off for no good reason because I wasn't willing to make the very nuanced minor adjustments that would actually make them great exercises.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And, you know, the leg, leg curl is one of those really common exercises that, yeah, like, you know, does it's easy for people to just kind of plug in, you know, the magic, the magic number of three and the magic rep range of eight to 12. And mm-hmm. uh, everything has to be done in those, in those, that, in, within those parameters. And especially I think people forget that you can really get hypertrophy from these higher rep ranges, like 20 to 30, that might seem a little bit more exotic. And might be a lot more painful in certain ways, but they can be like this. There are things that you just need to try for yourself and the, you know, rep ranges and numbers of sets or something that is specific to each person, but also to each exercise to remember that.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'll say one more thing about hamstrings. Quads are easy to train in the sense they're easy to focus on. They're in the front of your body. They get an obvious burn response. Hamstrings and and many other muscles behind an individual's midline sometimes just get the short end of the stick and people end up nailing in their reps. You know, you you ever see that where they, they do quad work and it's great and the three quad exercises and then they're like, ah, shit, time to do hamstrings. And they've done like three sets of high bar squats, three sets of hack squats, three sets of walking lunges with an upright torso short steps and they're like all right three sets of ten on the hamstring curl and it's not only that they do the exercise (laughs) with too low a volume way too far at the end of a systemically fatiguing session with inappropriate rep range for them but even the technique they're just they're just doing this They get through it a good leg curl you come all the way up to touch the butt and you slow eccentric at least two or three seconds load the hams all the way down to a big stretch gently touch the apparatus at those bottom position and then come back up those are annoying painful reps that require focus and if you do multiple sets of those you do some higher reps or you do some higher rep sets, they will destroy and stimulate your hams I sure as hell won't do it at the end of a quad workout we've done trillions of other sets for everything so my last tip for hamstrings is don't just say you want to grow your hams mean it by at least maybe if you have two leg days in the week one leg day could start with quads the other could start with hamstrings and I know people, you know, you start a quad workout with lying leg curls, sorry, you start a leg workout with lying leg curls. I do this all the time and or very often. And people will always comment on Instagram, I thought you were supposed to start with compounds. First of all, Brad Schoenfeld has multiple published studies shooting that right in the face. That is, that is a, a recommendation it's contextually dependent and usually applies to ballistic athletes like <laughs> that's one of those that came from athletics that just never anyone's no one screened for bodybuilding application like that eh, good enough for me right so it turns out that's not even true but at the end of the day if you really think that's the case you're going to always end up putting isolated muscles or muscles that require an isolated movement like hamstrings at the very end of your workout and it's just not going to be you're going to think man i really have trouble training my hamstrings Well, guess what, motherfucker, if I trained a muscle group after tiring the shit out of my whole system and throwing up a few times in a trash can, I wouldn't be able to train it either. If you told me, hey, after a whole quad workout, train your biceps, I'd be like, hell no. What are you talking about? I do three sets of biceps, but I don't feel shit. I'm 50 percent weaker than usual. This is awful. The real problem isn't that I'm doing something wrong with my biceps. It's that I threw my biceps all the way to the end of the workout. The idea that there's like muscles in the human body in normal cultural lore of training that are always really not always very too often relegated to last and when people have problems bringing up those muscles and they have great other muscles they don't make that shift for example how many people have you ever seen start a shoulder day not that I'm saying a shoulder day is a good idea but let's say you do two shoulder workouts per week Bill how many times have you seen people start with the rear delts mm-hmm. almost never people start shoulder day with presses why only one reason so they can lift a lot of weight and be happy with themselves. That's it. Who the hell needs more front delt work anyway? Nobody, but everyone damn near starts with a you know press. So when you do leg day, what do you start with? Squats, because they're impressive and you get to lift a lot of weight. You don't wanna do leg curls first and then leg presses and then finish off with lighter squats, even though that's the workout of your life and your hamstrings and quads got crazy stimulated because it offends your ego. You wanna do it in reverse so you can lift the most weight, but we're not here to do that. So a lot of muscle groups like the hamstrings, suffer not only from all those other things I've been talking about but from the fact that people tend to do them later or last in a workout and then there's not really much of a mystery to solve as to why they're not growing like you wanted some of the workouts in the week should prioritize them first and, and and I see that with other muscle groups not to get too far ahead but people say hey man my biceps are really struggling show me a program every time they train biceps they train seven or nine sets of back before that mm-hmm. I'll tell you what's wrong train your biceps before you back and they're like, well, won't that limit my back growth? Yeah, it will. But that's bad, like, uh-huh. So do you want big biceps or not? I can't tell why you're in the gym. And they're like, I guess I can't tell either. Decide what you want and train that. Maybe not first always, but first many, at least once during the week, the muscle you really wanna bring up should be trained first. Yes, that will screw up the training for other muscles, but there's no way it, it doesn't. Your Whatever muscle you train first has to screw up the training for the other muscles. It's just a matter of priority at that point
0: hmm. Yeah, no, I remember going through at one point in my training and realizing that I like if I separated my bicep training from my back training on different days, like I my curling performance was like 30% better. Yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah. It was huge. So yeah. yeah. And so speaking of, you know, other muscles
1: that are behind the body, how about glutes, Mike? Oh, boy. Well, I'm not Brett Contreras. So you got the, you got the wrong guy on the podcast for that. Um, glutes. Okay. A lot of the same stuff I've been saying. One thing that's big on glutes is it's easy to lift a lot of weight, but it's more difficult psychologically to get into that mind muscle connection situation. For example, if you do your hip thrusts, I'm not a huge fan of hip thrusts. I think they're fine. It's a fine exercise. If you do your hip thrusts with a deep stretch at the bottom, and a concerted effort to hold a peak contraction at the top, and then a slow eccentric ride back to the bottom. You don't need much weight and you get an amazing glute stimulus. What do people do though when they do hip thrusts? Oh my God, it's like the hip thrust Olympics. I've seen girls that weigh 130 pounds do hip thrusts with like 405 pounds. Bill, I'll be completely frank with you, I've never done a hip thrust with more than 185 pounds. I tried doing 195 and I was like, I'm not strong enough, right? My glutes are so big that when I'm completely lean, I have striations, they still fold. I can still pass the pencil test where I put a pencil under my glute and it still traps it in. There's not, there's so much glute that it's falling off of my body. And somehow I'm not strong enough to do more than 185 pounds for a set of 10. But it's really not strength, is it? Because quality comes first. And I see so many people doing as much as they possibly can. And uh, as far as weight and the quality of the repetitions becomes some variable they're not even tracking. And the emphasis is on just like, how many times can I hump the air with a tiny range of motion and say I lifted some amount of weight. And the thing with hip thrust is, is, is multiply bad. It's so, Fucking annoying to put that much weight on a bar <laughs> yeah. on the ground. It's on the ground. You have to put a little two and a half. <laughs> yeah, on the two and exactly. a half. You know what I'm talking about? Like, what are you doing? You get so fatigued from taking all that weight off and putting it on that you don't even do the rest of your workout properly. So my big tip with glutes is focus on the quality of the movement and do the right stuff. Um, that's it's probably like, you know, I have many other things to say about glutes that are more marginal. But that one, I think, is one that you see so often. Um, And even, dude, I've seen bikini competitors that's 315 pounds on a glute bridge or whatever. And I'm like, all right, I guess you, Jesus, you must have enormous muscular glutes. They turn around and it's like, huh, all right, well, I don't know, calling me crazy, but maybe you should reinvestigate how your technique is working on that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, no, yeah,
0: it's one of those, another one of those exercises where with a, like, just technique that is slightly suboptimal you can move a lot lot more weight and it might not like actually not even be visually
1: that much different it's bill it's a great point it is so subtle that the only thing that can really help is you as the person who wants their glutes to be bigger has to jump in and commit to an internal reevaluation of what it is you're training for because i could look at you and say oh that looks pretty good But if you're really honest with yourself, you're like, dude, I need to take 80 pounds off the bar. I know I need to, but I don't want to. So that's a big thing. Another thing is bloods are a glute exercise. This following uh, statement is more geared towards females because they commit this error more often. People seem to think that for glute, this, this is legit, For some reason, for glute bridges or hip thrusts or whatever you want to call them, it's the Olympics and you want to lift as much weight as you can. Mm -hmm. And for lunges, for some reason, the same people, same bikini competitors, end up doing like 10 rep and reserve sets of 50 lunges with just their body weight, fresh. And it's all some kind of weird quality movement. They're like touching their own glutes on the way down. Like, I really feel it. Feel what? You're not even challenging the muscle take some weight off of your hip thrusts put it barbell on your back of course with time slowly periodizing and do some heavier lunges i don't mean sets of five to ten but sets of and by, uh, reps i mean individual steps each set between 15 and 25 stops very close to failure very good technique weight shifted onto the forward leg all that good stuff stay nice and upright slowly centric touch your knee gently to the ground every time and come back up but if you do that for hard sets of 15 to 20 yes i'm sorry your body weight may not be enough if you do it super it after some exercise sure it may be enough but fresh you may need some weight and that may be uncomfortable also a lot of gyms don't really have a really good way to access that if you have a closed squat rack with no open pins how the hell are you supposed to get 135 pounds out of the fucking rack on your back you can get it done in many cases. There's some squat stands you can use. Sometimes you can actually put the the hooks onto the outside of the squat rack. You can do standing lunges. but what I would say is make your lunges more rigorous and not just um there's this practice that males, males mostly commit the other error where they just go psychotically with no technique on ego lifting and do sets of three. Yeah. A lot of females will do this thing where it's, I would call it like performative resistance training. It's like a kinesthetic exercise. It sure looks like lifting, but they're like 10 reps in reserve on every set and they're, no loading and they're just like oh i'm I'm training my glutes like it's almost like eating cereal but every time you put the spoon in there most of the cereal falls off and you're like yum i'm getting huge and there's just as much cereal in the bowl as when you started like yeah i know it looks like you're eating cereal but you're not so a lot of times that kind of thing is people say well i do lunges and then you're like show me and they do a set and you're like was that a warm-up for something and they're like what do you mean you're like aha check this out 50 pounds on your back Lunge until you can barely get up, and then rack the weight. And they're like, "Oh my god!" Some people, when they first do lunges for the first time like that, they get uh, what I like to call uh, jokingly "IOMs" in- instant onset muscle soreness. You can just immediately <laughs> your get sore. Have you experienced that before with lunges? It's like totally insane, and you're like, "Holy shit!" Have I been doing these wrong my whole life? And the answer is yes. So do your lunges more intently with slightly heavier load, closer to failure, and do your hip thrusts with less load with higher reps. You basically have hip thrusts or low rep, lunges are way too high rep, too easy. Do one of these, and in most cases, I think you'll experience the benefits.
0: Yeah. Wow. And if you need some tips on cereal eating, check out Mike's Instagram.
1: Oh, Real. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm so overmassed right now. I don't even want to think about that. Oh, Good goodness. God.
0: <laughs> and, yeah, so finally, you know, talking about calves. Ironically, we're talking no about comment. calves last. Just when <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of those muscle groups that people like to forget about or tack on at the end.
1: Yes. So, okay, first of all, you said it all. Tack on at the end. And then and there's no problem until they complain about their small calves. But you can't do both it's like the rear delts at the end of the dot workout stop doing that second big recommendation do not train calves once a week yeah your quads take a week to recover if you thrash them fine your calves are not as big as your quads mean, if they are holy shit! either you have really small quads or really big calves <laughs> calves oftentimes can recover within a few days of training and then you can train them two or three or four times a week no problem another thing is People chase weight on calves. Some exercises are conducive to that. Chest, if you ha- you want a big chest, sets of 5 to 10 can really zap your chest, and they'll get huge. For calves, in my experience, sets of 5 to 10 are fucking pointless because you just, ah, oh, my Achilles tendon sort of hurts, and I sorted mm. in something. Nothing else happened. Sets, for me personally, sets of 15 to 30 repetitions are where it's at. With short rest breaks 10 seconds at a time as soon as all the lactic acid et cetera, clears you can probably go again which means that you can do like eight sets of calves in like three minutes which means it's actually one of the easiest muscles to train full range of motion super ultra deep stretch perfect peak contraction which means you don't have to use a lot of weight i'm going to brag a little bit just to make sure i'm framing this correctly for how big the rest of my body is, I have pretty fucking big calves. They look very obnoxious when I'm wearing shoes what the hell happened to that guy's legs. They're not the biggest calves in the world. Jared Feather is one of my training partners. So I feel like I don't have calves, but they're like, they're very big, right? I'm never the guy using the most weight in a commercial gym. I got work in with old ladies that do more on the calf raise than me. And they must be wondering, how the hell is that possible? Well, I'm doing double the range of motion. I'm taking a one second pause at the eccentric and I'm doing double the number of repetitions and I'm taking half the time to rest. That kind of stuff really, really, really adds up for the calves. And for some reason, it just zaps them. They gets them crazy pumped, crazy sore. You recover, put on five pounds or add a rep to everything, repeat and continue. Another tip for calves is when people say they want to grow their calves, mostly they mean the gastroc, which is the cool diamond-shaped muscle that everyone associates with calves. The soleus is a deep muscle. It doesn't look so cool. If it gets really big, it kind of looks like you have cankles instead of big calves. (laughs) And the soleus is primarily the limiting factor in training when the gastroc is put into insufficiency by bending the knee. So those calf machines in which you get in and your knees are bent and you grab the two double dildo handles and you do this rocking back and forth and you know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. The cool thing about that machine is that anyone can be world's strongest man on that thing. Four, five, six plates, doesn't matter. You just use your tendency back and you're going. The bad news is that it poorly trains an already not very obvious visual muscle that you don't want to train to begin with. So what I would say is most calf work should be straight leg, uh, not bent knee, And can be done just holding a dumbbell on a set of stairs. It can be done on a variety of standing calf machines. Donkey calves is cool because the thing goes onto your butt and you bend over and still straight legged. Short rest breaks. Lots of repetitions. Lots of approaches to failure. Get your calves nice and pumped. They'll get nice and sore. When they heal, you hit them again. Progress normally. Here's another thing people don't do with their calves. Ooh, I got a good Mm. rant. For some reason, some muscles, people are organized and they write down their PRs. Everyone knows their squat <laughs> yeah. PRs, this and that. What's your calf PR? People are like, man, whatever, that's lame. What do you mean? You don't keep track of that. How do you know what to do next time? I've literally seen people do this where they write in all of their sets and reps or whatever. And then for calves, I've done this too. I travel, but when I'm at home, and this is people who train the same gym, for calves, they'll write in calves. Like check mark, like I did calves. What the fuck does that mean? Mm. You didn't write like quads, check. Like what does that mean? <sighs> what did you do? People don't track, don't keep track of calves. They'll do random machines. They'll do a machine they feel like. Sometimes another machine. Sometimes stair calf. Sometimes one leg. And it's it's great for variation, but it prevents you from really finding that zone in your calf training, which is painful and tough, and inching and pushing and inching further and further. That's where tons of gains are made. So like with everything else write down your sets and reps for calves and aim to put five pounds on the bar or one rep every week until you need to deload and then switch machines if you get tired of one and the other, switch rep ranges, do one leg or two, whatever variation you need to inject to the program, and then continue that tracked diligent progress because that's what gets calves to grow just like it gets everything else to grow. And it's crazy that the same kind of tracked diligent progress that people know is a great way to make sure your chest is growing triceps are growing quads are growing back is growing they just abandon sometimes with small muscle groups like calves like forearms etc
0: yeah that's yeah that's great there are a lot of people you know looking up from their phones just be like oh you got me (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i think that calves are one of those interesting muscle groups where they really can handle you know higher frequencies and you know the higher reps and things like my reps work really well with them like right now i'm training my calves four times a week and i'm doing you know with my my reps i'll do a heavy uh, like a a bigger set and then i'll do you know seven seven more my rep sets you know up to six reps where like you know three sets of 10 just isn't going to cut it
1: no, that's that back to that three sets of ten discussion for calves it's like dude i don't feel like it did anything I can literally nothing happen to me three sets of ten might get your, your calves sore the first like three times you ever train your calves and then after that just done and here's the thing with those frequencies that are higher like when you can recover train again with the good technique with the my reps and everything like that i think the fact that most people don't do those things explains a large fragment of the variation of people who say they have bad calf genetics and their calves just don't grow now look some people even if they pour everything into their calves they're not going to see much calf growth it's a small muscle there's mostly tendon calves are a very seemingly genetically oriented muscle we're like if you got it you got it like jared doesn't even train his calves and they're like 20 inches or some insane shit. and if you trained them, they'd be like wow. stupid and they'll throw off the rest of his physique right so and he'll he'll tell people I'm not the guy to come to for calf stuff. Now he knows how to train him still because he knows how to train anything else, but that's just the thing. But if you have skinny calves, there is hope for you. But it's that hope does not appear in the form of training calves once a week at the end of your quad and hamstring and glute workout for three sets of ten. Let me see if I can make this worse on the seated calf dildo mm. machine. <laughs> That ain't it. And if that's your idea of trying on calves, and you're saying, hey, "Man, my calves don't grow I have bad genetics," get out of here with that stuff. Get back in the gym, three times a week, seven sets at a time, my rep style, fully extended knee, super slow on the eccentric, super deep stretch. You will burn. You will hurt. Your calves will grow. Maybe they won't grow a ton, but they'll grow marginally. My calves are completely measured up to the rest of my physique, and I'm like, whatever, 5'6", 250, so I'm pretty jacked. My calves are well in line with the rest of me, and I used to be called chicken legs in high school. In high school, I did not have a small chest. I did not have small arms. I did not have small quads. I did not have a small back, so it wasn't just skinny all over. My calves were pathetic, and for a very long time, they were just not really that big until I was like, fuck this, and I just, I didn't even know hardly any sports science. I just started training my calves the way I train the rest of my body. When they weren't sore or tired, I hit them hard. And I tried to figure out what hard meant. And eventually I realized higher reps just really beat me up much better. So that's what I started doing. A lot of people who say I have bad calf genetics, they haven't done the due diligence of trying to practice that kind of stuff. If they do, they may find, maybe half of them, maybe more, their genetics are pretty good and their calves grow. And another thing, sorry, one last thing, then we probably got to go. It's great next time for upper body. One last thing is that for some reason people lose perspective and think that small muscle groups are supposed to get big faster than larger muscle groups, but all muscle growth is really relative. So you would never in a million years train your back for six months see that it only grows a little bit and be like "Fuck that (laughs) i'm not training back you like most people understand intuitively after they've been in training a while that like the back is a big muscle it takes a long time to get bigger but the same thing is true about forearms or biceps or calves growth is relative so if you train your calves for six months and they get a little bit bigger don't give up I've, i've trained my calves for 20 years and they've gotten bigger on average every single year for 20 years it, you just, it's just still getting bigger. So you know, a lot of times people with small muscle groups like the calves, they'll really like bury it in and be like, fuck that, mission calf, six months. And then after six months, they're like, uh, all right, they grew half an inch, but who cares? They're now 14 and a half inches, sweet. Well, yeah, they are now, but you've been training calves hard for six months total. Imagine if you quit training your back after the first six months of training, we'd all be walking around backless. So that perspective is good to keep in mind, stick with it. Added up over years. I know training calves over the years seems like a nightmare, but if you really want big calves, over the years you will get bigger calves. They'll be much bigger. And then people will tell you stupid shit like, oh, you have really good genetics for calves, which I've been told before. Bullshit. I just took the time to grow my calves. I, my genetics calves are fine. They're not super below average. They're not super above average. But just like all of us with average ish genetics or above average genetics for a certain muscle group, we weren't born enormous. Uh, and it's certainly, you know, when, you know, somebody like Ronnie Coleman, when he trained his chest for the first six months, he didn't become Mr. Olympia. But the way some people think about it calves-wise, they just quit training altogether if that doesn't happen. If they didn't, like, double their calf size in six months, then they quit. And and that's just not a very productive perspective to take. You, you know what I'm saying? Have you ever encountered that sort of attitude where they just like, because it's a small muscle group, they expect that any amount of training which just blow it up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, remembering that you really need to invest time and like time is the is the big player here and doing things right consistently and you know, recently becoming a judge this is something that that really came up where when you're at an amateur show, you know, calves are a huge glaring weakness left and right and it's like it's so it's it's sad because by the time you talk to these guys like you, you by the time people think about competing or they're stepping on stage you're telling them, yeah, your calves are a weakness, but it's like, if you're going to bring them up, it's going to take 10 years of consistent training. So it's like, you know, you you just started competing now. So like, good luck.
1: For sure. And and the reason is it's almost like their calves aren't weak because it's a mystery. They just haven't really been focusing on them for the last 10 years that they were training. So everything else is really impressive, but their calves aren't. And it's kind of like people are always looking you know, you can even Google and YouTube and, and do the search terms like how to get your lagging body parts to catch up. What does that mean? Catch up like you think your back is really that pathetic that you'll get your calves to catch up to it in just a few months. How the hell is that possible? At the end of the day, it's similar timeline for most muffles and it's a timeline measured in years, definitely not weeks and not months.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyways absolutely awesome episode today Mike we covered a lot of ground and gave a lot of really cool tips that I think are going to benefit people just wrapping up here I wanted to ask you about the RP diet certification Woo!
1: thank you for that shameless plug so a lot of people have been asking over the years finally we got our shit together and we are getting a diet certification And it's not your typical diet cert because it's not something where you take like a two-hour test and then ta-da, you got a cert. The coursework, it's literal coursework, it's modules that teach you the ins and outs of dieting for body composition. Essentially dieting to keep people healthy but make sure that they lose fat and gain muscle over the course of time. Tons of practical strategies. It's targeted at coaches, both in person and online. There's no prerequisite knowledge required, but you should probably read our books and a ton of other evidence-based stuff before you go in. It'll be that much easier. and You'll get more out of the course. Why am I saying course? Because the average amount of time it's taken our testers who've taken the course uh, to test it out is 40 total hours. Hmm. You learn stuff. It's not a cert where you're like, oh, I have a seal, a seal of approval. It's a course and you get certified at the end. But you actually have to know stuff. It's intense. It's big. It's coming. It's like Godzilla, but friendlier and teaches you more diet advice, which arguably Godzilla doesn't teach you at all. And in any case, um, if you go on the RP Strength Instagram, you can go right into the bio links and sign up to be put into the first cohort. Uh, the sign up officially starts August 1st, but you can get on the pre-sale email list anytime starting now. So depending on when this podcast is released, get on that site. If you're interested, ask some questions, message customer service. If it's something that's up your alley, it's going to be a cool thing.
0: Awesome. Yeah, no, excited for that. And I think that it'll bring people a lot of value, you know, actually putting it together like an organized course really forces you to to learn properly. So, yeah. You you would hope,
1: certainly if you want to pass the test.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, wrapping up one fun question, Mike. What's one piece of advice you would have given yourself when you were 20?
1: Don't get into bodybuilding. It's terrible. (laughs) I'm totally kidding. That would have been fun, huh? (laughs) Uh, uh, You mean in training or just just life? life?
0: Just life. Yeah, getting deep here. We started off talking about calf training and ended up talking about the soul.
1: Get on YouTube earlier.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, these kinds of, if we had more time, I would. Pick apart this question philosophically to ask exactly what it is we're getting at. And because you're yeah, there's that whole timeline problem where if you change one thing, you're not so sure everything else will <laughs> go the same way. Uh, the butterfly effect kind of thing. But I would say, you know, like uh, YouTube seems to be something that's going pretty well for me right now. And people seem to be interested in stuff I have to say. And I'm a very late entrant. I've only been on YouTube for like uh, two years at this point. And many other people, I like, think like Jeff Nippard was on YouTube like 10 years ago or something insane. So it's kind of like, like, get on there, dummy, and talk to people. But luckily, by the time I got on YouTube, I had my my shit together relatively well. So I don't have to like go back to old videos and be like, oh, sorry, folks, I was wrong about all these things. And I lied to you about that. So there it is.
0: Awesome. So anyways, I will link Mike in the description so y'all can look him up. And thanks again for being on the show. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one on one online coaching. I also offer one-time custom hypertrophy programs tailored to your needs. So, if you want to take your gains to the next level, DM me on Instagram and I'll let you know my rates. Make sure you follow the podcast and we'll see you next time.